Today's scripture reading is from Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. The entire Israelite community left the wilderness of sin, moving from one place to the next according to the Lord's command. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So the people complained to Moses, give us water to drink. Why are you complaining to me? Moses replied to them. Why are you testing the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you ever bring us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what should I do with these people? In a little while, they will stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take the staff you struck the Nile with in your hand and go. I am going to stand there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. When you hit the rock, water will come out of it and the people will drink. Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites complained and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is the word of the Lord. And the title of my message this morning is this, Water in the Wilderness. Now, in the majority of the book of Exodus, as well as into the books of Leviticus, Number, and Deuteronomy, the experience of Israel can be summarized in this word, tension. They exist in a tension. They had been rescued and redeemed out of Egypt, powerfully rescued and redeemed out of Egypt, and they had been given the hope of the promised land, a land that was said to be flowing with milk and honey, meaning it was going to be a, a very bountiful land, a land where they're going to thrive, and there's riches there for them. They have this promise, rescued in the past, this promise for the future, but they were sort of in between those two experiences. They were wandering in the wilderness, and the wilderness was a place of hardship and pain, and toil, and sin, and failure. It was not a pleasant place to be. And yet, the Lord had them there for a purpose, to refine them, to test them, to build their faith, strengthen them, make them more like him. As I said last week, the Lord took them out of, out of Egypt, and now he had to get Egypt out of them. So they were living in tension. And for those of us who are in Christ, our lives are just like Israel's. We live in attention. Christ has come, and he has brought salvation. He has forgiven us. He has set us free. We, we are adopted into the family of God as sons and daughters. A great salvation, great freedom, great joy for us, life for us in Jesus. We've been given the Spirit. So a great salvation, a great redemption we've experienced. And we've been given the hope of eternal life, that one day Jesus is going to come back and restore and renew all things to put completely put away sin and evil and death. And so we have this great hope that when Jesus comes back, that our lives will be forever transformed. He's going to finish the work that he started. And so we live between these two times of Christ's first coming and second coming. And this time between those two times is certainly a wilderness. It's hard. It's difficult. It's painful. It's shot through with sin and failure. We, we face our own sin. We face the sin of others that's inflicted on us. We exist in a world that is full of evil and oppression. We get sick. We die. We, we see suffering all around us. It's hard. And so while we have salvation in the past and salvation to look forward to, our life right now is difficult. Life in between the tension. Difficult, beautiful, and confusing at times, like full of beauty and victory to be sure. There, there is much beauty, there is much victory in this world, much to celebrate. 
But man, how often is life confusing and painful? And if you're a believer in Jesus, how often does that pain and that tension sort of raise this sort of thing, this kind of angst in you? Lord, I knew you were faithful in the past. You rescued me. I see that. And I know I have hope for the future. But what about right now? God, are you faithful right now? What about the pain and the hardship and the suffering right now? What about this wilderness experience that I'm in right now? See, our souls in those moments, in that that pain and that frustration and that difficulty, we can start to feel thirsty, as it were, a bit dried up, a bit worn out and weary. And when that happens, so much gets exposed. So much gets revealed in our hearts. When we're in in the wilderness and we're experiencing sort of the thirst that we can feel, what comes out of you? What do you... What do you express with your thoughts and your words and your actions? What bubbles up in your heart? Is it faith? Is it joy? Is it life? Is it trust in the Lord and his faithfulness? Or is it anger, complaining, doubt, angst, and anxiousness that shows that you don't trust the Lord? This is what Exodus 17, 1 through 7 says is going to get into for us this morning. It is honest about life in the wilderness. It's honest about acknowledging the pain, but it's also going to confront us. It's also going to challenge and exhort us with a strong word. And here's the main point for us this morning from Exodus 17. When looking for water in the wilderness, trust the Lord, do not test the Lord. And so the story that's recounted in Exodus 17 It follows much the same pattern as the two stories we saw last week. There is a pain, there is a protest, and there is a provision sort of movement in the story. And so Israel continues their journey through the wilderness, as verse verse 1 of chapter 17 says. They're moving from one place to the next according to the Lord's command. And then they eventually make camp at a place called Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. So here we go again. Israel's moving through the wilderness, being led by the Spirit of God. They make camp, and wouldn't you know, no water. Another pain point. And just as they did before, they complain. Israel yet again complains. Verses 2 and 3. Give us water to drink. Why did you ever bring us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Sound familiar? Just as we saw last week, Israel's angst and their complaint and their unbelief get so strong, they start accusing Moses, and through Moses, the Lord, of wanting to kill them. You're going to kill us with thirst. Before you were going to kill us with hunger, now we know you're going to kill us with thirst. And what's funny here is they don't dare directly say this to God. Like, they're not that dumb. (laughs) They're not that bold. But they complain to Moses. It's sort of Moses is sort of the mediator. It's safe to complain to a man. We, we really are complaining about the Lord, but we're going to say this to Moses. And Moses calls him out on it. He sees right through it. Why are you complaining to me? Why are you testing the Lord? Moses is like, you're accusing me, you're complaining to me, but really, your complaint is with the Lord. You're grumbling against God. And even more, Moses puts a finer point on it. 
You're testing God. You are testing the Lord. Now, this is an interesting flip because as we've seen the past couple weeks, both in chapter 15 and chapter 16, God has said in each of these instances, each of these stories where there's a point of pain, that he is purposefully testing Israel. He's purposely trying to expose what is in their heart to show that there's unbelief and there's doubt and there's sin in there. And why? To expose it so he can refine it, so he can draw their attention to it, so they can repent of it, turn from it, and trust in the Lord. So God is doing this refining work in them by testing them. It's good because we're weak. We're sinful. We have doubts and sin in our heart that the Lord's going to draw out of us to refine us and mature us. We need that work. It is good when God tests his people. It is not good when God's people test him. Because here's what we're doing when we're testing God. We're essentially calling into question his character. We are saying that God needs to be exposed for not being perfectly faithful. When we test God, we're, we're suggesting that he needs to grow and mature in his faithfulness that he's not perfectly good, that he's not perfectly holy, that he's not perfectly faithful, that he does not always keep his word. Testing the Lord is calling into question his character. It's also manipulative. It's trying to force God to act through complaint. Give us water to drink is another way of saying, are you really faithful? Well, why don't you prove it? Prove it by giving us what we want. Manipulative. I bet you brought us out here just to kill us. Oh, no? Well, we'll prove it. Prove that you're not out to kill us by giving us what we want. It's manipulative. Do, do you see how wicked this is? Do you see how problematic this is? Do, do you see why testing the Lord is wrong? I mean, it, it would be like this. And I hope this has never been any of your experiences in your marriage, but just imagine me for a moment. A husband comes home after work and he finds his wife preparing dinner in the kitchen and she's hard at work. However, it's not ready exactly when he wanted it and so he comes in and he looks at her and he goes, are you even cooking? Boy, I hope that didn't, hasn't happened in anybody's <laughs> marriage, but if, you, if it has happened, you know what is wrong with that situation. One, it's manipulative. It's trying to get the wife to feel guilty by calling into question, does she even care? You didn't give me what I wanted when I wanted it, and so I'm going to guilt you into feeling bad about that. But second, it's minimizing. Because in the face of obvious faithfulness, he's calling into question whether she's faithful. Obviously she's faithful. And yet, he minimizes now multiply this times a million. Had not God been obviously faithful in rescuing Israel out of Egypt? Had he not been obviously faithful in delivering them at the Red Sea? Had he not been obviously faithful to them by providing them waters at Merah? Had he not been obviously faithful in providing them daily bread each day? Think about this. The morning, Israel, the morning Israel got up and complained about there being no water, what happened that morning? They gathered bread that God provided for them. The very morning they complained about no water, God had showed himself faithful to them, and yet they still complained. 
obvious faithfulness over and over and over again, radically powerful faithfulness over and over and over again, and yet here they are calling into question whether God is faithful, minimizing his faithfulness. All of that, and they still questioned whether God was good, still questioned whether he was faithful. Friends, God's goodness, his faithfulness, his love, his provision, they're perfect It's holy, it's true. He does not need to be tested, for in him there are no flaws and no imperfections. Friends, to suggest otherwise is the height of pride and unbelief. It is to look at the relentless faithfulness of God and to shrug our shoulders and go, maybe, maybe he's faithful. I know he just dropped 10 plagues on Egypt. I know he just parted a Red Sea. I know he turned bitter coffee-tasting water into sweet-tasting water. I know he provides bread for us each and every day, but maybe he's faithful. Like, there's a humor in that because it's so ridiculous, but friends, it is deadly serious. It is the height of pride and unbelief. Would it surprise you to learn that this isn't the only time this happens to Israel? They actually do the exact same thing years later in the wilderness. You can read about this in Numbers chapter 20. This happens early in their journey. Numbers 20 is when they're a bit closer to getting into the promised land. Uh, It's also a very significant moment because this is Numbers 20 tells about the biggest leadership blunder that Moses makes. But both instances are important because both instances become this historical reality that gets repeated in the stories of Israel, in the, in the messaging of Israel's history, as they are remembering who they are and what God has done for them. This, regular, this instance regularly comes up in other books of the Old Testament. So Psalm 78, 12 through 18 declares this. He worked wonders in the sight of their ancestors in the land of Egypt. He split the sea and brought them across. The water stood firm like a wall. He led them with a cloud by day and with a fiery light throughout the night. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink as abundant as the depths. He brought streams out of the stone and made water flow down like rivers. But they continued to sin against him, rebelling in the desert against the Most High. They deliberately tested God. And then later in Psalm 95, 7 through 9, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on that day of Massah, in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. Listen, embedded in the worship book of God's people, taught in the very songs that they sang year after year after year that was intended to shape their hearts, was this warning against testing the Lord. And the example that came up about what not to do was this example in Exodus 17. Do not test the Lord. Do not harden your heart to his grace and his provision and his goodness. Do not call into question his character, even as you are surrounded by so many evidences of his faithfulness. There's strong warning here for us. But this story wasn't just about warning. As much as it is about warning, that's not the only thing going on here. It is also another example of God's incredible faithfulness and grace. See, even as Israel tested the Lord, even as they're sinning against him, he provides for them. He provides for them. He is gracious to them yet again. 
And so after Moses goes to the Lord in desperation, he's like, I I think they're going to stone me now, God. It's getting so bad out here, they're picking up rocks to throw at me. And so he complains, he he protests to the Lord. The Lord answers Moses this way in verses 5 and 6. Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take the staff you struck the Nile with in your hand and go. I'm going to stand there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. When you hit the rock, water will come out of it and the people will drink. And so Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. So God tells Moses, get out in front of the people. This is God saying, go assert your position of leadership once again and bring some elders with you. And the elders are going to be there because they're going to testify and they're going to validate Moses' leadership, but they're also going to stand witness to something. They're going to stand witness to God's faithfulness to Israel. And so Moses is to take his staff, which is a sign of God's authority and power, and God says, I'm going to stand before you on the rock and you're going to strike the rock and water is going to come out. And Moses does this. And so there's several things to note here. First, I want you to notice the detail of taking the staff you struck with the Nile. So so God says, the staff that you struck with the Nile, just as Moses struck the Nile with this staff, he's going to strike the rock. What is striking something with the staff signify? Judgment. This is a sign of judgment. Yes, God is going to bless Israel, and he's going to provide water for them, but in striking the rock, Moses is signaling that God is also judging Israel. That they're being judged for their sin and unbelief, even as God's grace provides for them. The second, the Lord standing on the rock, his presence on the rock, associates him with the rock. And this imagery also became very important and central to the life of Israel. Again, in the Psalms, we see this. David writes in Psalm 18:2, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock where I seek refuge. And then interestingly enough, in Psalm 78, which we just saw, which talks about God bringing water out of a rock, in verse 35 it says this, they remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. So in the story about God providing water from a rock, Israel also remembers God is their rock. And then Psalm 42 which opens with these well-known lines, as a deer longs for flowing streams, so I long for you, God. I thirst for God, the living God. So association with God and water, but then David later says, I will say to God, my rock. And so this association with God as a rock, as a provider, the one who provides water from a rock, he is that rock. It's not as if God is just making water come up out of the ground through a rock. No, Israel was to associate. God is our provider. He is the very rock who gives us this water. He's our provider. He's our refuge. He's our redeemer. He's the one that satisfies our thirst in the wilderness. And so as much as Exodus 17 is a warning, it's also this incredible declaration of God's grace and his faithfulness and his provision Like the story of the Lord, their provider, their refuge, their redeemer who who gives them water from a rock. This story was to ring throughout the generations in Israel. It was to remind them when looking for water in the wilderness, trust the Lord, don't test him. He's your rock. He's your refuge. He's your redeemer. He is good. He is true. He is faithful. Trust him. Don't test him. 
And friends, this story was not just for Israel. This story is for us too. For the faithfulness of God in Exodus 17, it, it points us to an even greater expression of his faithfulness. And this expression gives us even more reason than Israel to trust him. In 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul does this really cool thing where he draws a straight line from the situation in Exodus right to our experience as the church. This is what he writes in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 3. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So notice what Paul does. He traces some history here. And so he talks about passing through the sea, being delivered in the Red Sea, being led by the cloud, eating spiritual food, and drinking spiritual drink. Now, that spiritual that he means, it doesn't mean that the bread they were eating and the water that they drank weren't actually physical. He's talking about the source. It was spiritual, meaning it came from the very hand of God. And so here Paul is summarizing the events in the book of Exodus. But notice what Paul says about the rock. It's Christ. Who was the the rock providing them water in the desert? Jesus. Who was standing on that rock? Whose spirit was on that rock? Jesus. Who is the rock that David sang about? He said, you're my refuge and you're my redeemer? Jesus. Who is the one that David longed for in his spirit? Who who panted for, for, who did he pant for like the deer pants for water? Jesus. Like Christ is the rock in the Old Testament. Now, God the Father, yes, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Because where Jesus is at work, the Father is at work. And where the Father is at work, Jesus is at work. But the point Paul is making is that what is taking place in Exodus 17, that God's grace and faithfulness and provision to Israel at Meribah was a picture of, It was a foreshadow. It was a sign pointing to an even greater work that God was going to do through Jesus. The water that flowed from the rock at Meribah was a sign of the greater water that Jesus was going to give his people. Now, is this just some, like, creative theology that Paul is doing? Like, where does Paul get such an idea? From Jesus himself. Jesus himself points to being the rock of Exodus 17. So in John chapter 7, Jesus is participating in what is known as the Festival of Booths. And this festival, this was a festival that commemorated Israel going through the wilderness for 40 years and God providing for them, providing food, providing water, being their provision in this journey through the wilderness. And so Jesus is celebrating this with his disciples, and here's what happens. John 37, 7, 37 through 39. On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believe in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit. At the very festival where the Jews were celebrating God's provision for them in the wilderness, 
where they were remembering God giving them bread and water from a rock, Jesus stands up and goes, hey, is anybody thirsty? Come to me. But like the, the implication of there cannot be missed. I'm the rock. You need water for your soul. Are you thirsty? Come to me. I'm going to provide water for your souls. I'm going to, I am the rock that provides. I am the provision that Exodus 17 and Numbers 20 pointed to. Are you thirsty? Like this is such a, anyone who is thirsty, are you thirsty? Like if you were listening to Jesus, if he was standing here right now asking you that question, how would you answer? Like, are you thirsty? Does your soul feel dried up and beat down by hardship and pain and weariness of the wilderness? Did you feel broken and beat down by your sin and the sin of others? Oh, Jesus says, come and I will give you water. Come and drink from the water that I provide. And don't miss this. Remember what Psalm 78 said. What it says about what God did at Meribah, in verse, and this is Psalm 78, 15, and 16. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink as abundance as the depth. He brought streams out of the stone and made water flow down like rivers. The picture here is God turning a desert into a riverbed. So much water flows out of this rock that this dry wasteland became like a river. An abundance of water, just a beautiful picture of nourishment and flourishing. Where does Jesus say he's going to cause that to take place? In you. In us. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. Friends, far greater than changing your circumstances. God's going to change you. Like life and strength, faith, Joy, peace, satisfaction, obedience, not tied to circumstances, not dependent on your strength, but overflowing from the spirit that Jesus gives, overflowing from the power and the life of the spirit that is in you if you are in Christ. Listen, friend, if you are in Jesus, you can walk the weary, dry wilderness because through Christ you have an everlasting supply of water the very Spirit of God living in you. And that Christ is the rock in Exodus 17. It also makes sense of a very interesting detail that you may have noticed. It's a very subtle detail. God tells Moses he will stand before him on the rock. His presence is going to be on the rock. And Moses is to strike the rock with the staff of judgment. Like God associates himself as the rock. Moses is to strike the rock with the staff of judgment. Put two and two together. Moses is striking God with the staff of judgment. It's a subtle detail. It's a curious detail in Exodus 17, but in Christ it makes complete sense. The imagery makes complete sense because this is what Jesus does. Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh is sent by the Father on a great rescue and redemption mission, and Jesus willingly lays down his life as an atonement for our sin. He takes the judgment that you and I deserve on himself. He is struck for you and I. And as Jesus hangs upon the cross, he cries out, I am thirsty. 
Jesus goes into the wilderness for us. He takes upon himself our pain and hardship and sin and suffering. And then John, the, the, the Apostle John in the Gospel of John, in chapter 19, he makes these two quick parallels between Exodus and Jesus. In John 19, 36, he notes that not one of Jesus' bones were broken, which associates Jesus as the perfect Passover lamb who was killed for our sins. And then in verse 34, he notes that after Jesus had died, a centurion takes a spear and stabs him in the side. And what comes out? Blood and water. As the rock was struck, and it was struck, and an abundance of refreshing water came out, Jesus is pierced, and the water of eternal life comes flowing out. Jesus is truly the rock of Exodus 17. Jesus is truly the rock that gives us eternal life. And what this means, friends, for you and for me, is that we never, ever need to doubt God's faithfulness and love to us. Whenever you go looking for water in the wilderness, trust him, don't test him. God has spared no expense to show his faithfulness to you. God has shared no expense to be faithful to you. In love, he sent the Son, and the Son died to set you free, to forgive you, to set you free, to bring you into the family of God. And the Son has given you the Spirit, and by the Spirit, you have eternal life that is going to well up in you, transforming you, renewing you, and that is going to carry you into eternity. But God has been relentlessly faithful to us, perfectly faithful to us. We need not doubt. We need not despair. What grace, what love, what faithfulness to us, even when we were sinners, even in our rebellion, even when we were knuckleheads running around going, God, are you faithful or not? Jesus died, and he forgives, and he sets us free, and his grace is abundant to us. Friends, in light of such grace, how oh, when you go looking for water in the wilderness, trust him, trust him. Because here's what we also need to understand. While the Apostle Paul draws a clear connection between the grace of God in Exodus 17 and, his, and God's grace to us in Christ, he also draws a connection between the warning. This is what Paul goes on to write in 1 Corinthians 10. Now these things, meaning Israel's experience in the wilderness, took place as examples for us so that we will not desire evil things as they did. These things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. We are to learn from the example of Israel. Yes, the Old Testament points, to us to, points us to Jesus. That's the first thing it does. It points us to Christ and God's fulfillment of his plan in Christ. But the Apostle Paul also tells us these stories are for our instruction. We are to learn from them that we would not test the Lord, that we would not desire evil things, as Israel did, that we would not call into question God's character and minimize his incredible grace to us. So listen, let's, let's just be honest. Like, life in the wilderness is hard. This is, the Bible does not diminish this. It does not excuse this. It does not deny this. Life in the wilderness is hard. Like, so much pressure 
and so much messaging in our culture that is, that is pushing on us to, to turn from God and to center ourselves, to, to, to put our trust in self. There's so much about our culture that says, hey, self-reliance and self-fulfillment and self-definition, like that's the way to go. It's so many voices saying, don't be bound to God's word. Don't find your identity in Christ. Don't, don't listen to God's word when it comes to your sexuality or your money or your job or your marriage or your parenting or your relationships. Like, do your own thing. Define yourself. Go your own way. Like, there's so much of that bearing down on us. And then you add on top of that just that life is hard. Like, life is painful. There's frustrations and there's anxieties and there's disappointments and then there's failures there's conflict like it's just messy it hurts and when all of that comes bearing down on us what happens well we get worn out we're human we're weary our souls get thirsty they need refreshment but this is where the rubber meets the road like it's in those moments, it's when we're worn out, when we find ourselves just like Israel, sort of like, where's the water? I need water. We have a choice to make. Are we going to trust the Lord? Or are we going to test him? Are we going to trust the Lord and be sensitive to the Spirit and all that the Spirit is wanting to do in us? Or are we going to become hardened? Hebrews chapter 3 it quotes Psalm 95, which Psalm 95 is pointing to Exodus 17, in order to give a warning to the church. This is what Hebrews 3 does. It says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me, tried me, and saw my work for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked to anger with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts and they have not, know, not known my ways. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. This talks about those who will not enter into the promised land because of the rebellion. And so from that experience, the author of Hebrews says this to us, the church, watch out, brothers and sisters, so there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God but encourage each other daily while it is still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. Friends, life in the wilderness is hard. There is genuine pain, real pain that we cry out to the Lord about, things that we experience that are real. We don't deny those. We're not stoics. But listen, and you know this from experience, Going from a place of pain to a place of hardening and testing the Lord, sometimes that can go from zero to 60 in like 0.5 seconds. Like it is so easy to move from this place of legitimate pain to all of a sudden doubting God's goodness and being hardened by sin. And so in the midst of the pain of the wilderness, are you being hardened or are you sensitive to the voice of the Lord? Are you trusting the Lord or are you testing the Lord? Like amidst the trials and the pressures, are you grumbling and complaining? Are you calling into question God's faithfulness, his goodness? Friends, our culture today, like being authentic about our pain is like this thing. And in some ways, hey, that's good. It's like, let's not hide stuff. But how often in our authenticity 
and are getting our junk out there, it's just a way to cover that we're complaining. Like, like we're calling into question God's goodness. We're calling into question his faithfulness. Yes, Scripture gives plenty of language of crying out to God in raw, honest, real pain. The Psalms are full of that kind of language. But where does all that language lead to? Trust, dependence, obedience. A deeper experience of God's faithfulness, not a hardening of your hearts. So friends, are you hardening your heart in your complaints and in your authenticity? If you are, that's testing the Lord, calling into question his character. Are you being tossed from here to there, to here to there, to back around and all over the place with fear and doubt because you will not trust the Lord? Are you all over the place? Is your soul and your mind and your life chaos because you're not trusting the Lord and he's not anchoring you in the midst of the wilderness? Or perhaps you're here this morning and you've even abandoned, either abandoned the faith altogether or, boy, you're on that trajectory. You're just like, man, it's so much easier just to give in. Like, so much easier to just chase after that pleasure and that comfort. So much easier just to, just to throw in with the culture than it is to trust God in the wilderness. Hey, you're not wrong. It is, it's easier. But I promise you, that path does not lead to life. That path will not satisfy you. That path leads to destruction and judgment. Now, if you belong to Christ, he's going to correct you and he's going to pull you back. You can be sure. He loves you. But if you don't belong to him, that path is going to lead to judgments. Is this you? Is this you? In the light of the grace of God, in light of what Christ has done, are you responding? Are you trusting? Or are you testing and are you hardening? Or how about this? One last way I think that we can do this. Man, we treat God like this in a sentimental sort of way. Like God is my, my good feels. Like, like I need a spiritual pick me up and so I'm going to go and I'm going to find the things that make me feel good. Like God is just another drug. He's just another pursuit, a way to pursue pleasure and, and to sort of try to numb my pain rather than experience the Lord's grace in my pain. Like have you made God just the sentimental Santa Claus in the sky? rather than the king that you submit to, the glorious Lord over all things that you submit to and you live your life under his rule and his reign and his glory. Like, if we have made God a sentimental Santa Claus, we do not see God rightly, and boy, we are testing him because we're minimizing him and we're trying to manipulate him. So friends, listen, I know the wilderness is hard, the pain is real, the pressure is heavy, but what is more powerful, the wilderness or the water? What is more definitive of reality, the pain or the provision? Like, listen, God rescued Israel out of Egypt. God delivered them at the Red Sea. God provided water and he provided bread. He was with them along the entire journey. They had every reason to trust in the Lord, every reason to trust him. Friends, in Christ, we have all the more reason. Like, listen, the gospel doesn't turn down the volume on our obligation to trust the Lord. It turns the volume up all the way because in light of what Christ has done for us, we have every reason, all the more reason. God has spared no expense, none. He gave his son, and in light of that, in light of that, he shows he is faithful to the end. 
He who did not spare his own son, will he not give you all things? And so friends, the grace of God puts us on the hook. It's a good hook to be on. It's a good place to be. But don't miss the warning, the push, the challenge that invites you into a deeper experience of grace and trust and says when you're looking for water in the wilderness, trust him, don't test him. But the good news for us, the good news for us in the midst of all of this, through Jesus Christ, is that if you're beat up and worn out, if you're aware of your sin, your failure, you're aware of the ways that you've been testing God, the good news of the gospel is that in the wilderness, there's grace for you. In the wilderness, there's forgiveness for you. In the wilderness, there is life for you. There is peace, there is joy, there is strength there's transformation, there's renewal, there's love, there's intimacy with God. All of that is available to you in the wilderness through Christ. And so when you go looking for water in the wilderness, trust him. Let's pray.